It's a blessing to be together on this Lord's Day. It's always good to be here, to be able to commune with Christ, to be able to set a tone for the week, and always grateful for the opportunity that we have to study God's Word together. And this morning, to talk about the cost of forgiveness, because forgiveness is very costly. That's why it's so very challenging for us. We have a hard time fathoming how God could come in the flesh and die on a cross while people were spitting upon him. They've driven a crown of thorns into his head. They have beaten him. They have mocked him. They have scourged him. They've hammered nails through his hands and his feet. And he stands naked by the Father, taunted by the world, and yet showing amazing restraint. His first words from the cross are not, Father, send 10,000 angels, send fire to devour them, but rather, Father, forgive them. He bore our griefs on his back, our sorrows on his shoulders. His hands are pierced with our transgressions, and he allowed his body to be wounded and bruised for our iniquities. And so the cross is the ultimate symbol of forgiveness and of the cost of forgiveness. And it teaches us so many lessons about forgiveness and about its price. And that forgiveness fulfills God's mission. In Matthew 1, verse 21, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Luke 1, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus' whole purpose and the incarnation and coming to the world and becoming a man. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but... That's as we forgive our debtors. In instituting the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, verse 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he practiced what he preached. We just quoted his first words from the cross, Father, forgive them. And the perpetual mission of his followers, of his disciples, that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 3, verse 13, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye, Ephesians 4, 32, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And that word as is a how word. So if we want to understand forgiveness, and if we want to understand how to forgive others and how to be more forgiving towards others, we have to first understand and appreciate as much as humanly possible how God and Christ forgave us. That's what makes it possible. That's where it all starts. And we want to do that this morning as we study the cost of forgiveness as taught by Jesus in Matthew, the 18th chapter. If you want to turn there and follow along, that'll be our text this morning. Jesus gives there the parable of the unmerciful servant. And it begins in verse 23. He begins his parable with the word therefore that we commonly see pointing us back to what came before, what leads into this parable. What's the context of this parable? What provoked what prompted this parable? In Matthew 18, Jesus has taught about conflict resolution. And Peter responds by asking, How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? That's the question. It's a result of this question Peter asked about 
forgiveness. And Peter knows the tendency of man. He knows the tendency of himself. They're going to keep offending. They're going to keep sinning. And perhaps he has this Jewish tradition that said you have to forgive three times. And so it seems the context, the question that prompted this parable is, what's the limit? Peter wants Jesus to define the limit, the limitations, the boundaries. Up to seven times. And to give him some credit, he's gone a little past the second mile. If it was three miles to begin with, he's gone a little more than double that, seven times. He's been with Jesus long enough to have made an impression, been around him long enough to know that he's generous and he's gracious, and he's going to expect more than three times. And so he ups the ante to seven, and perhaps he's waiting for kudos because he thought he was being very liberal. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. He multiplied the number Peter threw out by 70, and that would have knocked the breath out of him. It doesn't mean once somebody gets to 490 offenses, you don't have to forgive them anymore. It was such a large number, you can't keep count. That's the point. He just took the number seven and he played with it. He multiplied it to unlimited. He multiplied it to infinity. Peter was trying to measure it out. How often? That's the question. But God doesn't measure forgiveness in a teaspoon. And we shouldn't either. Forgiveness is not quantitative, it's qualitative. It's not just a matter of bookkeeping or simple arithmetic. Therefore, it's the beginning of this parable, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That word brought indicates a reckoning a time of accounting, we all have these times in our life where we're brought to an accounting, we're brought to a reckoning before God, and there's going to be this ultimate, final reckoning and accounting we're brought to. And to appreciate the cost of forgiveness, I think we have to appreciate the cost of a talent. He owed him 10,000 talents. What does that mean? The way that God forgives us, the King, the Master forgives us, Based upon how, how much is a talent? A talent was 20 years wages for a laborer. So 20 years times 10,000 equals 200,000 years wages. That was the debt this man owed. 200,000 years wages. And I think comparison can help us often with our comprehension. The total revenue of the Roman government at the time of Christ in Idumea, Judea, Samaria was 600 talents. 600 talents total revenue. In Galilee, it was 300 talents. You remember uh, in 1 Kings when the queen of, queen of Sheba wanted to give Solomon a gift commensurate with, with uh, his great wealth, she gave him 120 talents. And so when we compare that gift, that, those revenues, 10,000 talents. Jesus is emphasizing the point, this man owed a debt he could never pay. He could never pay back. Just like the 70 times 7 emphasized unlimited, infinity. Sin is the debt, and infinity is the amount. 
And I think the key to being forgiving and being forgiven is being convicted, recognizing, admitting, appreciating that our debt is innumerable, inestimable, incalculable, incomprehensible. Verse 25, but as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. And the king, the master, had every right to do that, to extract and recoup what he could, even though he could never get it back, what was lost. That was just, we talk about wanting justice. That's justice right there. That's what we all deserve right there, verse 25. That's justice. The servant, therefore, fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. But the problem was, <laughs> he couldn't pay it all. It wasn't, it wasn't possible. He is helplessly, head over heels, in debt. And that describes every single one of us. So don't ever forget that. And ever felt, that describes every single one of us helplessly, head over heels in debt. We've embezzled what the king has entrusted to us. We have wasted so much with prodigal living, and we can never pay, we can never earn our way back. Just as the prodigal son learned. And God could send us to hell to get back pennies on the dollar, but even an eternity in hell could not pay back what we wasted. The cost, the debt. And so it's kind of an amazing statement. I mean, is he crazy? Is he bad at math? Is he doing what we do sometimes and bargaining with God somehow? Or does he still not fully understand the enormity of his debt? But he's penitent. He falls down and he begs. He throws himself on the mercy of the Master. And that's God's design for all of us. That we would face and feel the enormity of our debt so that we're brought to our knees in humility and in that state, find forgiveness. And in that state, learn to be forgiving towards others. I'm reminded of the interaction that Jesus had with the self-righteous Pharisee, Simon, in Luke 7. He's in Simon's house, and a woman comes in who Simon deems is a, a terrible sinner. He's washing Jesus' feet, and Jesus gives a, another story illustrating a similar concept about two people with two debts, and one debt was greater than the other, and He forgave them both. He released them both from the obligation to pay back the debt, and He asked, who loves the most? And Simon rightly answered, the one who was forgiven most. His point was, this lady's actions issued from a heart of profound gratitude. Whatever degree we see and we savor the forgiveness, the graciousness of God, to that degree, our thanksgiving will be translated into thanksgiving, into our actions. Our love for God and our love for others is dependent upon our understanding and our appreciation as much as possible of God's forgiveness of us. God's love for us. And I think Jesus here gives us the secret of being gracious and generous with others. Being merciful and forgiving towards others. Be utterly amazed that you are forgiven. 
Be more amazed that God forgave you in spite of your flaws, in spite of your failures and imperfections and sins and all that you wasted and all that you ruined and all that you broke. Be more amazed that God forgave you than you're amazed that you've been offended. That's how to be forgiving. You know where self-righteousness comes from and a refusal to be forgiving and merciful? You know where that starts? Non-amazement. That God forgave me. And people refuse forgiveness. People hold on to grudges and bitterness for life because they quit being amazed or because they never were amazed to begin with. The power to be merciful and generous and gracious of others is first experiencing the generosity and grace of God in our own life and being so full of that, being so satisfied and amazed by that, and being amazed in the mercy of God. Verse 27, Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. This is the picture of God. This is the picture of the master and how he feels about us, how he views us. This is the picture of amazing grace. This is the picture. This is a summary of our salvation. He released him. That's the same word in Matthew's account where it says that Pilate released Barabbas, released him of the punishment for the crimes, released him from paying back the debt. Why? He was moved with compassion. And where does that come from? Love. 200,000 years worth of debt, embezzlement, crimes committed against his master didn't change the master's love for this servant. Doesn't change the master's love for us. And that's good news. That's gospel. And it's not just a feeling God has for us. I don't you, know, you think the master felt good about the damages and the harm and the loss this servant had inflicted upon him. It's not about how God just feels about us. It's not just a feeling, it's an action. It's a choice. Agape. Even though he's been sinned against to a degree and an extent we can't even fathom, in an estimable, incalculable, incomprehensible way, he still chooses to forgive and cancel the debt. God absorbed the entire loss on his own account. You know, if you come to my house and in a careless moment you destroy a priceless family heirloom that's very sentimental to me, it's very valuable. I don't, there's not a price. Something my wife gave me or my children gave me or something that just means something to me. Or maybe you wreck my car. You seek forgiveness and I say, who bears the loss of that? Who pays for that? I do. And that's why forgiveness is so hard. That's why it's so costly. But that forgiveness reveals that the person who wronged you means more than the wrong they committed against you. That's what God's forgiveness of our infinite debt, our 200,000 year debt, says about how He views and values us. We mean more to Him than what we did to Him and what we did to His Son. That's the story of the cross. God will forgive us any and every sin we give to Him in Christ, but He first wants us to feel the weight and the enormity of that guilt and that debt and be undone by it 
be broken by it. He wants us to know just how much we've been forgiven so we can be the one who loves the most. And then we can feel and experience and truly appreciate and extend that grace to other people. But unfortunately, that's not what this servant does. Unfortunately, this is not the end of the story. It's not a happy ending. And we see a transition to the second half of this parable in verse 28 with the word but. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. And the master, Jesus, goes on to describe him. You know what he calls this? Wicked. You know, we think a lot about different sins that we would say particularly evil and wicked. And you know what he says is wicked, pure evil? Responding to God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness by being unmerciful. That servant emphasizes the same servant who had just been forgiven a 200,000 year debt. How soon he forgot, how soon he turned around and quit being amazed that he was forgiven. That's what happened. And that's what happens when we become ungrateful and unmerciful and unforgiven, unforgiving. We quit being amazed that we are forgiven our debt. We leave this memorial on the first day of the week, which reminds us of this debt that we could never pay. Reminds us of what we did to God and how we wasted so much our 200,000 year debt. We remember this memorial and it humbles us and it moves us and it motivates us. And then we go out, back out into the world and we treat God and we treat others like we're not amazed. We're amazed on Sunday morning. What about Monday through Saturday? He went out and he found. And that means this was intentional. It wasn't incidental. He's out for blood. He found the person who owed him a hundred denarii. And a denarii was one day's wage. Hundred days wage versus 200,000 years wage. Versus 73 million days. And this is how God wants us to view our debt before Him. Compare and contrast our debt before God versus other people's debt before us. That's how He wants us to see it. And yet he takes him by the throat and he chokes him. Secular writers talk about that time uh, people going to those who owed them money, their debtors, and grabbing them, wringing their necks so that blood would come out of their mouth and their nose. It's the mafia approach. And this is picturing a Christian who won't forgive. And we can be as bad as anyone about that. Think about the context of Matthew 18. Who's fighting the apostles? Christians can rumble as good as anyone. And divided churches, divided houses are monuments to that. And this unforgiving, mafia approach, Christianity and Christians are the most inexcusable and culpable because we take so much and give nothing back. Pay nothing forward. We seize and we strangle. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and he begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. He's penitent and this harmonizes with Luke 17. Go to them, rebuke them, and if you repent, forgive them. That's exactly what's happening here. Matthew 18, go talk to them. Go work it out. 
He begged him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? This is essentially the exact same response in words the unmerciful servant had said to God. And you would have thought he would have understood. You would have thought he would have related and sympathized and had compassion. That we're all beggars called to share what we've been freely given. And the irony was, there was the potential this man could actually pay the debt back. I will pay you all. That actually was possible in contrast to his debt. But he seizes and strangles him and has him thrown into prison for what was essentially pennies on the dollar to what he had done. Verse 30, and he would not, he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. And that describes us so often, our heart, our mentality, our, he would not. It's a choice, not just a feeling, it's a choice God made. In spite of how he felt about what we had wasted and what we had done to his son. It was warm and fuzzy. He would not. Everybody thinks that forgiveness is a wonderful idea and virtue until they have someone or something to forgive. We want forgiveness when we're the one who wasted, and we want justice when people have done something to us. You wicked servant. Jesus calls this unimaginable wickedness to not forgive others when we have received and accepted the full pardon and forgiveness of God in Christ. This is the whole point of the parable. If God has forgiven you of so much, are you being forgiving of others? And if you're not, it's the height of evil wickedness that you should take so much forgiveness and give nothing back. To react having been forgiven by being unforgiving. To react having received mercy by being unmerciful. To react having been loved by being unloving. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and they came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Here's this second accounting, reckoning that awaits all of us. And notice he doesn't call him wicked when he owed him a 200,000 year debt. It was wicked. He calls him wicked when he refused to forgive someone else of a 100 day debt. That's how God views unforgiveness. It's incredible. He didn't view the 200,000 year debt wasn't when he was most upset. What we had done to him, what we had done to he's most upset in the way that we turn around and treat others. He didn't call him wicked when he owed 10,000 talents. He called him wicked when he refused to forgive. I forgave you all, all that debt. And that's the point being emphasized. This is the key. Any and every sin we've ever committed, God's willing to forgive all of it. Can we not forgive what God forgives? And we don't even understand the height, the full evil of sin, because we're not omniscient. We're not omnibenevolent like God is, all good. God, who is most holy and most grieved and offended by sin, is willing to forgive any and every offense, any and every trespass. How can we who are so unholy, whose righteousness is as filthy rags, not be ready to do the same. 
And while some sin has more greater temporal consequences, any and every sin is essentially a violation of God's will. It's an offense against God that creates a debt that we could never pay back. We look at murder as a particularly atrocious sin, and yet we see it alongside strife, malice, backbiting, boasting, disobedience to parents, idolatry, drunkenness, lying, fornication. In light of how our Creator views sin, all sin, we can't be selective in what sins, what offenses we can choose to pardon or not pardon. And so to understand and appreciate forgiveness and to be forgiving towards others, we have to consider and understand our debt, our guilt. And this parable forces us to back up, to zoom out, and get the big picture. If I'm going to treat people appropriately with grace and generosity and mercy and forgiveness, I have to first change my view of God and my view of myself. It all goes back to how I see my debt before God, just like the, the Pharisee and the publican praying in Luke 18, and, and the, the publican wouldn't even lift up his eyes and said, Father, forgive me for I'm a sinner, versus the self-righteous Pharisee who quit being amazed, who didn't understand his debt. Our debt to God is greater than anyone's debt to us. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant? Just as I had pity on you. This is the thesis statement, I believe, in this parable. It's so powerful. It's the mic drop. He didn't say, shouldn't you have made him work for it? Earn it? Pay it back? Shouldn't you have taken justice and matters into your own hands and seized and strangled? Shouldn't you have had compassion? Put on. Choose compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That's the key to forgiving as Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. When God's forgiveness of our sin debt is fully appreciated and understood as much as humanly possible, it creates in us a tender heart, a compassionate desire to forgive others. Being pardoned by God breaks you down. And makes you generous and merciful and kind and patient and tender-hearted and forgiving towards others. Should you not have forgiven? That was the response. Should you not have released them? Should you not have let it go? Absorbed the loss? Wrote it off? Just as I absorbed the loss for you. Seeing and savoring being forgiven by God should cause you to see and savor the God who forgives. And when we see and we savor the God who forgives, that should create within us this desire to be like such a God. And show to the world, through our mercy and our forgiveness, something of what God is like in His nature and His character. To retell and relive the gospel of Jesus Christ in the way that we relate and we interact with other people. Matthew 5, 7, in this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the keys to kingdom living... Blessed or happy are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And he goes on to say, But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus said, Forgive your enemies, forgive those who wrong you, and demonstrate that you are children of God. You belong to God. Don't glorify your vengeance and your bitterness and your anger and your wrath. Like it's some godly virtue, it's not. 
People in God's kingdom are merciful because they've experienced the mercy of God. If you're not merciful, he's saying you're contradicting your nature in Christ. Your newness in Christ. Who you have become or who you are supposed to become when you are born again into the kingdom to be like God. You've become a forgiver because you've been forgiven and you understand forgiveness. It's a defining characteristic of God and of citizens of God's kingdom is knowing how to forgive and be merciful because you've received the same. Demonstrate your reconciliation. Demonstrate your redemption. Be a living example of blessed are the merciful and show to the world you've obtained mercy from God in the way that you treat others. I'm full in Christ. And because I'm full in Christ, regardless of what happens outside of that, has no bearing of how I'm going to treat people for my fullness, not my insecurity of extracting and extorting and revenge, which comes from emptiness and insecurity. I'm going to interact with others from a place of security and fullness. And I'm going to show the world that fullness, that security, comes from my relationship with God through Christ. We glorify Him. We're merciful as we're to be anything that God calls us to be to ultimately glorify the mercy of God. No matter, no matter how many times we've been to church, no matter how many times we've studied our Bibles, no matter how many times we've talked to God in prayer, no matter how many verses we can quote, a harsh, vindictive, unmerciful, unforgiving spirit proves we are not a child of God. And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. This is the ultimate consequence of the sin of unforgiveness. You can't pay it back. This is for life. This is forever. Will God forgive me of my 70 millionth sin when I cut my brother off at seven? God will forgive any and every sin we've committed if we give it to Him in Christ. We've talked about that. First John and our assurance. That's good news. God will forgive anything and everything, but He will not forgive failing to extend mercy and grace and forgiveness to other people when He's given us so much. Going back to Matthew 6, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For if, conditional, you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You're in trouble with God. You're on God's bad side. He's going to hand you over. He's going to deliver you to the tormentors. And you're going to owe payment again. If we don't forgive, we will not be forgiven. That's the ultimate effect of unforgiveness in this life and in the next. And so as the quote goes, he who, would, he who does not forgive destroys the bridge over which he must pass to go to heaven. Revenge is sugared poison. It's candy laced with poison. That's what the word bitterness literally means. It's poison. It's like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rats to die. It's like shooting yourself in an effort to hit your enemy with the recoil of your gun in this life and in the next. Listen, if you think that your sense of justice and wanting to see 
restitution and payment made and justice served is strong, realize that God's justice and God's wrath is infinitely stronger. By all rights, none of us should have got away, should get away with anything we've ever done. Justice demands, pay, justice demands payment. And the cost, the price, is life and death. And who paid for it? If you're a Christian, you didn't pay for it, God paid for it. His Son paid for it. And when forgiveness is granted, when debts are canceled, who bears the loss? The one who does the forgiving. And that's the story of the cross. That's the story of the gospel. God, Christ, God in the flesh, willingly absorbing every wretched, miserable thing we've ever done against God and humanity. Difficult. Costly. The costliest. Do we deserve it? Absolutely not. Now since God has done that for us, He asks that we do the same for each other. And what right does God have to demand that I forgive you for destroying the priceless family heirloom or wrecking my car? He has every right because He's God and because I wrecked so much more than His car. And if God can forgive me for wrecking His only begotten Son, surely I can forgive those who trespass against me. And as we offer an invitation, the admonition, don't put it off. Leave your gift at the altar. Go get right with God and with others. Become a Christian. Starts with being forgiven, being full. Dealing with people from a place of fullness that comes from being forgiven of your guilt and your debt. And treating people accordingly. From a place of fullness, not a place of emptiness. Believe, repent, and be baptized for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. Be resurrected in the new life. The debt canceled, freed, assurance, the joy that comes from our salvation and confidence in that salvation we've studied in 1 John. Not waking up, saying, you know, coming up, saying, I, I saved myself, performed surgery on myself, having faith in the operation of God. Nothing we can do. You, didn't, you can't pay it back, but He can. Maybe you're here as a Christian. You need that blood to continue to cleanse your sin. Confess. Repent and confess. We say that in 1 John. He is willing and, and ready and able to forgive any and every sin you've ever committed. Before you became a Christian, after you became a Christian. Don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. Get right with God. Receive God's forgiveness. Maybe you're here and you need to extend that forgiveness to others. And that's the same admonition. Don't wait. And we've learned that lesson the hard way. Things we should have said, things we should have done, and then they're gone and it's too late. You know, forgiveness doesn't change the past. Now it changes how that past is dealt with and who pays for it. But in terms of forgetting it, what you did, what others did, I mean, Paul and David kept bringing it back up. I'm the chief of sin. And there's an element of that that's good if we don't wallow in it to the point we lose faith in the blood of Christ, in faith in the mercy of God, to be humbled and compassionate, to remember I'm the one who was forgiven the most. I'm going to love the most. You don't forget. It doesn't change the past in that sense, but it changes your present. And it changes your future. 
Because without it, without God's forgiveness, without your forgiveness, there is no future. And if you need forgiveness, you need to receive forgiveness or offer forgiveness. If you need to respond to that invitation, God invites you to come and find it in Christ. Will you do that as we stand and sing?